0: We're in the study of Titus, as you know, and we had begun the um, section which starts with verse 5, we're not anywhere near done with it. I would encourage you to have um, in the little note packet that Fred sent out to you, but page 5, I encourage you to have that in front of you. There are two two slides here, two PowerPoint slides that I just reduced down and made here in the notes. But dealing with the passage from verse 5 uh, through verse 9, and uh, <clears throat> if you want to take just a look at that for a moment, mm-hmm. you'll see it's just a little bit in bold, blameless and proven okay. spiritual leadership, blameless and proven character, blameless and proven comp- <clears throat> Excuse me, incompetence. And so the term blameless is, in. I'm reading from the ESV translation, translates that above reproach. Some translations have blameless, some have bl- above reproach. And that's, that's kind of the governing character attribute that Paul is uh, wanting Titus to take a, take a, a look at as he's uh, looking for leaders. So let's begin again. we kind of stopped in the middle of it last week. We're not anywhere near done with this. But um, let me just open by a couple of reminders or a couple of thoughts that I think are very important. Uh, Just to review, this is uh, a book that we call one of the pastoral epistles. First and second, Timothy and Titus are the three pastoral epistles. They've gotten that nickname because pastoral relates to spiritual leadership in the church. And the other aspect of this, is, it's quite important. These three letters were all written right near the end of Paul's life. Second Timothy was written weeks before he was executed, but Titus and First Timothy are very close together. They would be written near the end of his, what some people call his fourth missionary journey, because I believe he was released from the imprisonment we read about the end of Acts. Served another several years, fulfilling church tradition, and a lot of the early church historians tell us that Paul was in Spain and a number of other areas in the Western Mediterranean, which fulfilled his strategic plan of how to take the gospel to the Roman world. Then was rearrested in AD 67, executed by the empire in AD 68, in the heights of Nero's ugly persecutions. And so the value of these epistles is you really see what's on Paul's heart at the end of his life. What is he really concerned about? And the answer, regardless of any one of the three epistles you study, is the church. The church has literally uh, exploded across the Roman Empire, and it's growing um, both in real numbers and proportionately uh, quite phenomenally. And with growth always comes the need for organization. And so I want to remind you of something. I know we've talked about this before, but when you read the New Testament, you always want to make sure you're clear. Is the concept or idea of the church being discussed here, the church's organism or the church's organization? Church of organism as organism is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 12, that the church is the living body of Christ. And he's the head. Does that make sense? The church's organization is what he's talking about in the pastoral epistles. To organize the local church. And you know, in, in where you and I live, in any community where you've lived, on lots of different corners in your community of the churches. They're all over the place. That's the church's organization, without commenting on anything else other than that. And so what Paul is saying is, and this is what we saw in verse 5, Timothy or Titus organize the church. I directed you. I left you in Crete for that purpose. Put in order the things of the church and choose leaders. So, just to keep that in mind always, whenever you see that in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, the focus is the church's organism, the living body of Christ. And no matter where you go in the world, you will will run into believers, you'll run into Christians, and all of a sudden you have a lot in common. I mean, I've, I've traveled all over the world in my life, and, and almost always it's been for some ministry, but if I'm in Asia or Latin America or in the Middle East, you connect with a group of Christians, and all of a sudden you're talking about the same things, and you're, you're sharing a lot of things, and almost always you'll, they'll mention, or I'll mention somebody, and you know that person. <laughs> Did you ever hear that phrase, there are six degrees of separation for each? I think in the church it's two. I mean, it's just, it's amazing to do that. It's happened to me over and over and over again. That's the church's organism. It knows no boundaries, knows no geography. It's just believers in the body of Christ. But for it to continue to be effective in carrying out its mission, which is the Great Commission, uh, it has to be organized. So, again, if you look at verse uh, 5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put and remain in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And elders, they're the leaders, they're the spiritual leaders. That term elder, as we looked last week, I don't know if you remember that, is presbyteros, and then overseers, which you see in verse 7, is episcopoi. I wrote that on the board. They're both referring to the same position, the same office in the local church. They're interchangeable words. The second thing I want to say by way of introduction is this particular section, Titus 1, or if you would look at its complement, 1 Timothy 3, really establishes a principle you see throughout the Bible. Leaders are always called to a higher standard. Do you agree with that? Mm I
1: agree.
0: Thank you, Tom. (laughs) He's the only one that agreed with Noah. (laughs) Leaders are always called to a higher standard. What do I mean by that? Of course Okay, obviously you didn't hear that, so I'll repeat it. A a, a person who has just been married to one
1: wife and reputable and so forth.
0: Okay, good. They are some of the character traits of a leader that we see here. But let's broaden that for just a little bit. Just broaden it. Is that a proposition that is always true from God's perspective? Leaders are called to a higher standard. Business leaders, political leaders, family leaders, church leaders, leaders are called to a higher standard. Is that a propositional statement that is true in all situations? Yes. Okay, I mean, several of you are getting firmer, getting more bold, and that's good. Yeah, I think it is. That is the way God... Has made his world and a nation or a group or a church or a business that chooses a leader who will not be held accountable who will not be a person of character integrity that organization or that business or that church or that school is going to pay for that you follow me I mean that is to me that is a standard that you can prove both Historically, without even talking about ministry, but you can also see it very much within the church and parachurch ministries of the last 2,000 years. An organization or ministry is only as good as its leader. And if the leader is not a man or woman of integrity, doesn't care about any standards, cares about only one thing the pursuit of power. That organization, that ministry, whatever it is, is not going to last very long. And he,
1: too, he needs to be accountable.
0: Exactly. And
1: you have,
0: like, elders and... The- that's right. I mean, accountability is, is such an important... I'm not sure I want to say principle. An important aspect. Maybe that's a better way to put it. An important aspect of effective leadership. Uh, John Maxwell used to say, if you're leading and nobody's following, or it's lonely at the top, he said, they're terrible metaphors. They're terrible metaphors, because a leader should have people that he's leading, he or she's leading, so close to him. You know, he, it, it, it is lonely in the sense that all the responsibility falls on you. But if you're really an effective leader, everybody's with you. Everybody's excited about the vision and mission of what you're trying to do. If everybody's so far back and you're alone, he says, that's really not a good metaphor (laughs) of effective leadership. Well, I'm saying all that because all of that, by that I mean what we've been talking about the last minute or two, is really reflected in what Paul is trying to instruct Titus to do. Crete, Crete, as a... An island in the Greco-Roman world had a terrible reputation. I mean, everybody in the Greco-Roman world looked at Crete as a scandalous, immoral, disreputable, you never could trust people from Crete. They would even make their, Paul's going to quote from one of them, their philosophers, their, their leaders would say, don't act like a Cretan. That wasn't, that wasn't a compliment. That, that wasn't that was telling you, it's like they would speak of Corinthians. Corinthiadzama, you're acting like a Corinthian. Neither one of those was a compliment. And yet, in his grace, God had churches planted in Crete. And Titus is the leader. He's, the, he's overseeing everything that's going on. So he says to him appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And then we, we covered some of this last week, but the overarching, the overarching character trait, and you see it in the way we did the slide, is be blameless or be above reproach. And we we'll talk about that again. Above, I, I like how ESV is translated, it, so that's how I usually talk about it. To be above reproach, what does that mean? What does that put that into your own words to be above reproach? What does that mean? There's nothing that anybody. John.
1: nothing that anybody can criticize you
0: for. There's nothing that anyone can be uh, critical about you and, and your 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 person, your character. Yes, Woody. What did you say? A okay. Well, that's 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 your reputation. Your reputation is such that. You know, I really can't think of anything. Critic or negative about him? I don't like everything he does. I don't like what, but it's a character. I can't can't really find, Billy Graham was like that. People that didn't even care about what Graham was saying or doing, the gospel and so on, the one thing they'd say, you know, Graham really was a man of integrity. Billy Graham tried, we've talked about that before, the Modesto Manifesto that they put together in 1947, was an intent purposely to form an organization to be above reproach. So, yeah, right, it's, it's
2: interesting today we scoff at that. We make light of that, well, it's all about perception.
1: <laughs> a, that's not real. Mm. But that's not also, <clears throat> that scoffing is not godly, it's not biblical, is it?
0: Not at all. Not at all. And um, can I go down just a tiny bunny trail here? And I'll quickly come back but one of the one of the things that concerns me and even concerns me in in the church and in ministries is we are we are developing more of a utilitarian way of giving things the end my goal what i want to do the end justifies the means doesn't matter how i get there just so that's a good end that's utilitarianism. You may not know that, but in ethics, that's called utilitarianism. But in, in life, just think about that. The end, if that's a good end. It doesn't really matter how I get there as long as I get there. That's not being above reproach. And so it's, it's a challenge. If leaders are called to a higher standard, than the leaders of the local church, did and that's church's organization, it matters whom you choose. And to have the mentality of just filling a slot, okay, we have this opening. let's get the slot filled. Does it matter? who? No, let's just get it filled. If somebody, for goodness sakes, if somebody wants to serve, let them serve. And that, you know, okay, that's true. But does it matter whether they're qualified or whether they're a person of character? The biblical answer to that question is, yes, it does matter. Especially when it kind of, comes, remember, elder, presbyteros, or episcopoi, elder, they're the spiritual leaders of the church. So your overarching standard is above reproach. Now, one of the challenges of reading through a passage like this is you start to beat yourself up. Because you start to say, well, goodness, I'm not even close to these things. I mean, if this is the goal and the standard, I mean, I am so far away from the standard. So don't beat yourself up. That's not the intent of this. So how do we look at this? That was an intentional pause to get you to think. So how do we look at a passage like this? This Is the goal God wants us to have? But we live in a broken world. And often, often your perspective is, is this person serious about their walk with the Lord? They're not perfect. But are they serious and growing? Are they serious and committed? And I think uh, that's, whatever that's worth, that's the perspective that I've taken usually. When I've had to get, you know, when I was in leadership, I, I hired a lot of people, and I always looked at, is this, everybody's a work in progress, but are they serious and committed about the work? And when I would interview people, particularly more upper, I would always ask a question that nobody else on my staff wanted to ask, so I would always be the one that would ask it. Now, there's nobody else in this room, we're not taping it, but I just want to ask you, are there any skeletons in your closet that we should be aware of?
1: Which closet? (laughs)
0: I've got a lot of them in the house. Uh, The one that has the door locked, (laughs) you never let Jesus into it. (laughs) Uh, remember that little book that we, we looked at? Led, My Heart, God's Home. Do you remember that? We we had, uh, I, wasn't it, didn't we do that in here? Yeah, uh, exactly. uh, yeah we, we passed, I had a bunch I passed out. Okay. But anyway, um, where was I going with that? Oh, I, that was just, you know, and it was really interesting to see the responses of people uh, that were being interviewed for a position. And, and almost always, almost always, they would say, well, you know, 15, 20 years ago, this was some things I was struggling with and it, it was a part of whatever I was. Okay, where are you now with that? You see, that to me, that that I look at a person that responds like that, and I automatically, my trust and confidence to them goes up because they're being very honest. They're being very forthright, and they're just telling you, you know, I still maybe be wrestling a little bit with some of that. That's, to me, I, I want to hear that. Rather than hire somebody, a year later you find out there's scandalous stuff that they still haven't dealt with that 's going to affect you it 's going to affect your organization as well as affecting them this is what this is how I want us to approach this this is god 's ideal, and in almost all cases when you look at ideal sets of virtues, no one is going to match those perfectly but this is this this is how we 're looking at it, so it matters so if you take a look at this there are three of them on two PowerPoint slides. I want to group our our, our perspective of study. This is on page five of the note uh, back at handout. Blameless or above reproach in proven spiritual leadership. So where do you start to look? Okay, a good place to start to look is what does their home look like? Second is proven character and their list of You'll see it. There are five negative and seven positives. We're going to look at those. And then the final one is proven competence, and that focuses particularly on how they handle the word of God and sound doctrine. So let's take a look at this from that perspective. So the first is verse 6, above reproach in spiritual leadership. So if you're if you want to choose a person who's going to be a spiritual leader in your church as organization look at their home is that fair is that valid Yes sir Thank you Dave that's fair because if you know, I can say that with a degree of comfort because you're all men. But if this were a mixed audience, I would probably have a hit taken out on me and be dead this afternoon. But if the Bible, that's supposed to be funny and I'm supposed to laugh at it, but if the Bible posits the premise that husbands are to be leaders spiritually of their home, and provocative thing to say in some circles in 2018, but if God holds the husband and the father as the spiritual leader of the home, then it would be it would be proper to look at the home. If you're gonna have somebody in spiritual leadership in your church, how does their home look? And so what Paul does is focuses first on the relationship of this man with his wife and the relationship of this man with his children. Now, listen, the, the thing about this is you, you, you look at it and say, well, my goodness, I don't meet that. Remember, it, I think we are to observe this and, and apply it as a work in progress. None of us are perfect husbands, none of us are perfect fathers. But what do you see in that home? So the husband of one wife. Some, it depends on how you put the grammar, some just translate a one-wife man, which is literally what it says in Greek, a one-wife man. That's literally the Greek. So that does not preclude a divorce situation. That's not the norm, but it doesn't preclude that. Because as you know, uh, a person can come to the Lord after they go through a wrenching divorce in a very difficult situation. So it's just, and I think that the way we always looked at it is you do a case-by-case basis. If there is a divorce in this man's life, I just want to hear a little bit about the circumstance. What, what, what caused that? What was it about? That doesn't rule out a person in spiritual leadership. But certainly a one-wife man means there's commitment, there's devotion, there's love, there's loyalty, there's servanthood as a husband of, of a wife. And it also precludes any kind of poly, uh, uh, a polygamous type of relationship, which was not uncommon in some parts of the ancient world. So it's just saying, okay, if you're going to ask this person to be a spiritual leader in your church, we, we want to tell us a little bit about your family life. Tell us a little bit about you know, what you've observed. Is that fair fair. and then your children now the, the the translation here is hard because his children are in the greek word there is pistos the normal word used for faith so you could translate his children as plural his children are faithful not open to the charge of debauchery when was the last time you heard debauchery used in a sentence I mean, it's not a word we normally talk about, but debauchery is, is out-of-control living. Debauchery is out-of-control living, whether it's in the sexual area of life, the controlled substance area of life, whatever it is, debauchery. You have, you have no boundaries in your life. And then insubordination, which has to do with authority. So, again, you know, all Paul is saying, and it's, it's huge, but Paul is saying, look at his children. And does that mean, well, I guess, what does it mean? <laughs> I mean, no, I don't know. Maybe, probably some of you guys, it would be the exception. But no family is perfect. No, that doesn't shock any of you. So either you agree with that, or you—oh my goodness—you don't even know how to respond. But no family is perfect. So I don't know. I mean, I, my kids are gone. They're in the thirties, late twenties. But you know, adolescence—adolescence—is a disease. I mean, it really is. It's often fatal for the parents. The the, the teens survive it, but adolescence is hard, isn't it? I mean, the United States invented us adolescence. We really did. In post-World War II America, sociologists and psychologists started to develop a new stage of human development. It's that stage from the primary years to adulthood, and we called it adolescence. And they sort of arbitrarily said, well, it starts around 12 and ends around 18. I think in 2018, it starts at 10 and last till 23. I'm I'm serious. It it really does. I mean, uh, Christian Smith, who's a sociologist at Notre Dame, has written three books on this. He says, we have got to change our whole way we think about this stage of life between childhood and adulthood. We've got to lower the age and we've got to increase the age. Because there are 23-year-olds acting like 12-year-olds right now in the choices they're making the way they're lived, they live the refusal to accept authority the refusal to accept responsibility where is that coming from it reflects more where the culture is and so all Paul is saying is take a look at the children the children reflect the leadership of the father perfect no but it's just and it's hard because all of us think of the the examples in the lives of our children wow If that's going to be rigidly applied, I don't meet this standard. Because teens, what's teenage, what are the adolescent years all about? The immense desire for independence, for indeed autonomy, no boundaries. And I hate you because you're setting boundaries, Dad. And some children are complicit and compliant. And others, their mission in life is to always challenge a boundary. That was my daughter. Joanna, when, when Dobson wrote his book, The Strong-Willed Child, he followed Joanna around and took notes. And then he put <laughs> it into a book. And it sold well. Because Joanna, she was just, the moment we got Joanna, she was four months old, both my kids were adopted. Jonathan was adopted, when he was eight days. Joanna, when she was four months. And it took us about three hours to realize Joanna's a lot different in temperament than Jonathan. He was six years old when he adopted. It. I mean, Joanna, every she's a little tiny baby. She's challenging what we're doing. And I mean she's a teenager, okay? Joanna, I want you to be home at eleven o'clock tonight, Saturday night. How about eleven thirty? No, eleven. Eleven fifteen? Every Saturday night, that's what it was. And then it goes to twelve midnight, which you know. And I I think I had that conversation with her every single weekend in her adolescent years. So if you look at that, you'd say, well, Ackman doesn't meet that. His daughter's insubordinate. She's constantly challenging authority. Well, yeah, but the thing is she did come in at midnight instead of 1230 or 1130, whatever the time frame was. But she's always challenging it. And, you know, Joanna's now... The glory of God, she's married to Greg, and Greg has to handle this. (laughs) But his temperament, his personality is just, by God's grace, just perfect for Joanna. And he just, he is, I watched, I've watched him now, six years they've been married. He is just, he is the perfect husband for my daughter. And what Jesus has gotten hold of Joanna a number of years ago, and she's teaching, she's in education, she's just fantastic with that. All that strong will is channeled. So it's, uh, what I'm trying to get you to see here is just because you've had struggles with your children doesn't mean you don't meet this. It's just say, take a look at how this husband and father leads his home. Is that a fair way to look at above reproach and spiritual leadership? All of us in this room have a series of concentric circles in our life. We're at the center. The first concentric circle, you know what a concentric circle is, don't you? The first circle is your family. The next circle is your church. The next circle is your business or your profession or your vocation or whatever it is. And the next circle would probably be the larger community. I don't know how far out you want to go. but I mean And what the Bible says to us Paul says this in 1 Timothy 5, you are to manage and take care of your home first. I'm paraphrasing the point. In other words, if you're not taking care of your home, then why in the world would God give you the stewardship responsibility to take care of more? And so that's kind of how he's putting it. He, Paul, to Titus, is putting it. And so that's the test. You start looking. Okay? Any questions or comments? Yes?
1: Yeah, it's, it's kind of like um, you can't give it away if you don't have it. If, if, if the home is not
2: mm.
1: orderly and mm-hmm. children are not believers, um, you can't very well advise others. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what I see here.
0: Well, Woody, I think that's exactly right. And again, it doesn't mean perfection, but has it been growth and commitment that's evidenced in that? But you're right. Um, if the home is blowing apart, I mean, really blowing apart, you don't want that person in spiritual leadership in your it's church. You it. just you just don't want that. And to choose someone that that. You you will you will see the negative effects of that in your body in your church. So.
1: Oh, I was I just thought it was interesting that two thousand years ago children were wild and disobedient.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you don't think of them being that way back then. But the, <laughs> the other thing is there there are some parents who are really good parents but just saddled with children that. Don't respond to anything, mm-hmm. you know. That's every once in a while you see that, and, and uh, it causes a lot of grief in in the family. So, so that may not be a hundred percent. You know that they're not good managers or thing. They're just just kids that that uh, never come under any sort of control. So.
0: I think it's one of the real challenges of something like this because. The, the two principles that are leveled throughout the Bible is the importance of institutions, the importance of accountability, but that every individual, every human being is accountable for the choices they make. Yeah. And so, I mean, there are, just, there are things here that make it difficult, so you've got to have some kind of a balance here. Because uh, you know the Hebrew uh, texts in Leviticus talk about incorrigible children. That's an old word, incorrigible. You, you know what that means, don't you? But uh, and there are some children that are incorrigible. And how, how how do you explain it? How do you? But you do you do have to deal with that. And how you try to deal with that is a test of or an evidence of, I suppose you could say, of of, of leadership.
1: I guess I was kind of thinking that same thing. Just, I mean, my own extended family. In my hmm
0: you know,
1: there's been situations where um, you know, kids have kind of gone off the rails. Mm-hmm. Yet, you know, the <clears throat> fathers are good, godly people, mm-hmm. and and you know, yes, they made mistakes or whatever, but you know, when you look at them as a whole, it's they're not, you know, they're they're good, godly people and and leaders and. and Different cases too, but you know, I guess I
0: would just kind of. Well, I
1: think. That, that there, sometimes it just seems like, you know, what what could they have done differently?
0: Right, you right, and, and you're so you're you are observing, you're observing in that individual, that father, and we're talking about fathers or husband, uh, a consistency. An integrity that you've observed. And if a child is in, that, I love that old word, incorrigible, that what that means is there's something about the way that child is wired or whatever uh, that does not necessarily negatively reflect on what the father has done.
1: But is it necessarily about finding fault? Or is it that if their first focus is to be? themselves, God, and family. They're not. They're going to be distracted from being a leader within the community, the church, the work environment. If their work
0: environment or the whole of our work environment. Home needs environment. That focus. I think that's another applicational point. If if there are so uh, a, a serious set of difficulties within the family, that may also mean they simply do not have the time or the capacity to contribute to the leadership of the church, because of, and your word, because of the focus. I mean, all of those things are a part of how you apply and think about this. But it is saying, which I think is very valuable, and in one level it's even common sense. If you want somebody to be a, a, in, a, in a, a significant spiritual leadership role in your church, you have the responsibility to look at how are they managing their home and if it is very difficult then probably for that reason because of the focus of what they need to be doing it's not wise to invite them to serve in the in the local body of leadership i mean just like the way we're talking about this is fantastic cuz that's how you really start to think about applying this
1: well,
0: if you were to do that aren't you what the family both, both well sure you are you you are absolutely and that's and that's the mentality this is maybe a very cynical way to put it but that's a mentality that sometimes local bodies, or even sometimes business, I just want to fill the slot. If somebody's willing to do it, praise the Lord! I don't particularly care whether they're qualified, just, oh, we finally have the slot filled. You know, that—that that is not a wise way to look at organizing something, is it? Is it? I mean, that's not. you You don't want to do that. So it's, but it's hard because, you know, honestly, and in our culture today, with the pursuit of autonomy and always pushing barriers and not submitting to authority. I mean, even to talking, the way we're talking around this table this morning, many people will be offended by that. You have no right to talk like that. You have no right to set those kind of stance. You know, which we do, if you're going to be accountable. Fred, did you have... A, so so
1: instead, of, instead of looking at perfection, you know, we have more at direction
0: direction. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Direction, direction. Uh, focus? Are you seeing growth? Do you see? I mean, that's the kind of thing we're looking for. Now, I want you to observe number seven, not verse number seven. For an overseer, again, that's episkopoi. I wrote that in the board last week. I'm not going to do that again. It's the same office, but then he notices noticed as God's steward. The Greek, I'm going to do this if you don't mind. The Greek words for that comes from the Greek word, oikonome. What English word do we get from that? Economy. Economy. So, steward or stewardship comes from this Greek word, oikonome, and in English, we get our word economy from this. Because economy or economics is about the stewardship of resources. And so, I just think it's fascinating That Paul says, as an overseer, an episkopoi, a presbyteros, as God's steward. Why phrase it in that way? Fred?
1: Well, um, you you want the person to have the economy to be able to truly teach the gospel message.
0: Okay. What does... Let's back it up just even a couple of, of further notches. What does the term, again, we don't use the word steward a lot, but stewardship we do. What is the word steward or stewardship? What does that communicate to you? Caretaker. Caretaker?
1: Serve. Serve.
0: Serving? If you're a steward, are you the owner?
1: No. 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 Not necessarily. <laughs>
0: If you, let's put it another way, a steward, the word sovereign applied to them or the word dominion applied to them. I'm using biblical words here. Dominion. In Galatians, in Genesis 1, God creates and he creates the apex of his creative work, human beings in his image. And then as we say, what does he say? have dominion over my world, rule over the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea, etc. That's another way of saying, you are now my stewards. You, my image bearers, I'm giving stewardship authority, but I'm the sovereign. I own it. But you're the steward. And that's the word he's using here. The church is God's creation. but you have the responsibility of managing it. And the managers, if you want to put it that way, the managers of the local church's organization are its spiritual leaders, the elders. And so Paul adds that little twist. as overseers, God's stewards, be above reproach. There is that phrase again. No one should be able to bring a charge against you. you. Your life is a life where you, and Paul puts this in, so in another passage of Scripture in Ephesians, to, be, to not even give the appearance of evil in how you live your life. So, whoa, the bar is high. So if you look at these, and this is in this next section, Blameless, above reproach, and proven character. Just a whole list of it. So I want to organize it in this way. He must not now, there are now five negatives here in verse 7. And verse 8, there are six positives. So this is 11 qualities, 11 characters, traits, that define a steward who is above reproach. What I want to try to do is turn these first five negatives into a positive. But he's putting it in the negatives because it highlights one of the real challenges for someone in leadership, to not be arrogant. Now, that seems to me to be appropriate because people who get in authority and power can tend to be very arrogant. Okay, let's turn that into a positive. How would you turn it into a positive? To be humble. Humility. Quick-tempered. That's how the ESV translates that. It's a great translation. What does quick-tempered mean? I don't think any of us. We're men. None of us in this room have any problems understanding (laughs) that. You fly off the handle. You're impulsive. You know, I'm, I'm on the edge. You know, you're quick-tempered. A drunkard. Violent. Greedy for gain. Let's look at those four examples. Turn that into a positive. Men that are above reproach exercise self-control. Not quick-tempered not quick-tempered, you control your anger. That's a real problem for men sometimes. It really is, isn't it? Or am I speaking to a group that hasn't had that, never has been challenged in that area? I mean, it's, that, that is, my father was quick-tempered. I grew up with a dad who didn't know the Lord. It wasn't until later in life that God got a hold of him. My dad was incredibly quick-tempered. He would fly off and and all he's almost out of control. Paul is saying, "You look at a potential leader. If you see a quick-tempered man, he is not exhibiting self-control. And drunkard. I mean, that's self-evident. You know what that means. the The alcohol is controlling you, not vice versa. Violent. That's that's a word that's often associated with rage, but also, I mean, criminal activity, premeditated murder, all that kind of stuff. But it's where you're 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 crossing from quick temper and anger to physical violence. That's the idea, and then greedy for gain that gets at the you know the heart of motivation, of uh, of you know why why do you want to be in a position of authority and power? Well, I'm greedy for gain. I want to get something out of it, and that's just it's the opposite of humility as well. So if I were to put these first five that are put in the negative, to turn them into a positive, you wanna look for someone who exhibits self-control. Bill Hybels years ago wrote an incredible essay I've used in a lot of different circumstances with people. But it is, he talks of self-leadership. If you're gonna lead something the first thing I want to look at is how you're leading yourself. Didn't
2: he just step
0: down? He retired. Oh, is that
1: what it
0: was? Yeah, he retired, yeah. Oh,
1: okay.
0: He retired. Now, there was... Uh, I don't know what to do with this. Uh, there was a, an accusation from a woman of, of several years ago that he had sexually harassed her. Now, that has not been proven yet. So, I don't, he denies it. So, I don't know, Tom... But he did retire. Uh, he announced his retirement, and two people were replacing him. But anyway, without, I just that is a really regardless of that, it's an excellent essay. That self leadership is is a very important. Who, who Bill Hybels, H Y B E L S. If you go online, just uh, Bill Hybels uh, on self leadership or something like that, that article will come up. It's really it's a fine article. It really is. It's worth a, It's worth it. Um, if I'm right uh, on this, that these first five really really zero in on on, on self-control, why is that so important? I mean, I, we're summarizing five into that, putting in a positive. Self-control, why is that so important for a leader? Well, just discipline
2: is mm. you know, such a great virtue mm. that it shows...
0: Great
2: maturity, you know, on different levels—not mm-hmm. only teenagers, but employees—and and, and, and little, little pieces of the discipline shows uh, great, like maturity and development, kind of
0: who you are. Mm-hmm. And I'm always
2: encouraging—I got a lot of guys. I got forty guys report to me, and we like always tell them if you can keep your trucks clean. That will show your
0: very discipline. That's, real, that's, a, good, that's a good piece of advice. So that really we've is. we've really
2: been working on that, mm. focusing on those things that are little key holes to how they operate. Mm. I had a uh, client tell me once that when I'm looking when I'm to buy an apartment building, what I do is I go to the boiler room. Mm. And if that's good shape, we're good to go. Because that's the one part of the building nobody sees, and so if you if you have, she said, we you have great discipline in being a good owner and keeping the boiler room organized, you know you're you're a great landlord. That was very telling. That is that's
0: that's a that's you know, a good insight. Because
2: you know. the boiler room is the one room. Mm-hmm. You no, know, literally, other than maybe an occasional inspector, even then he's not going to be there to, you no, know, check the with the mm. floor and see if it's clean or not. You know. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm.
0: Yes. that's good that's good I for years and years I would always tell my students uh, you're seeking a higher education degree but I want to tell you there's a lot more going on with us. you're not only getting information and skills you are really developing yourself because if you're going to succeed you've got to learn how to manage time would you agree with that if you're going to be successful, you must learn how to manage stress. Would you agree with that? If you want to be successful, you're going to have to learn how to manage interpersonal relationship. Do you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, all of those things. That's in education. I mean, that's one of the values. I mean, I still think it's valuable. But one of the values of higher education is if you, if you do not master those things, one, you're not going to do very well in school and you're not going to do very well in life. It's just, its not it's not, not going to happen. So that's back to uh, like what Dave was saying in, in his business, and so on, this self-discipline, this self-leadership, it's it, self-control, and that's why. Isn't it interesting that the ninth fruit of the spirit in Galatians five twenty-two and twenty-three, the ninth fruit of the spirit is self-control. You
2: ever heard the marshmallow rule with real kids? you had to heard of that, right? Where to, you know, what's the what's the biggest indicator of an infant if they'll be successful later in life? And they give them two options. Option one is they can have one marshmallow and they can eat it immediately. Option two, you can have two marshmallows, but you set them both down and you have to look at them for three
0: minutes.
2: <laughs> and leave them. So the infant, whatever that means, old enough to understand. The infant can, the infant they can wait three minutes to eat two marshmallows. Successfully mm. like that some Stanford, you know, yep. psychologists
0: yep. figured that that's just self-control Yeah, yeah. And delay gratification. Uh, just all of those kinds of there are virtues and values that are indicated in how a little child looks at certain things. Yeah, it's kind of neat. Let's look at these six positives. But hospitable? A lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. It, it, you see the flip side of the coin, all negative. I see the other side of the coin, positive, And you can see the negatives are overcome by the positives. Because the same things we just saw. So hospitable. What does that mean? Hmm? Welcoming? Friendly. Friendly? Mm-hmm.
1: Back then it would have been welcoming people into your home.
0: Yeah, very, that was a very uh, very yeah, I mean, common yeah. uh, thing because there weren't restaurants, hotels and motels and places like that. For anyone that traveled, it was almost always in some kind of a... You know, um, why do you think that's so important, though? Why is that listing? I, I don't know if this is an ordinal list, or maybe it isn't. But it's certainly the first one. and He you've got to be a reason why he makes this the first one, and he's hospitable. Why? Why is that so? What's that telling you when you observe that? You,
1: see your, you
0: put others before yourself. Mm. I mean, all of you, I, I think, all of you have had guests in your home, right? That that's a bit taxing. I mean, it's it, in a sense it is because. All of a sudden, you know, instead of the bathroom being yours to use at your will, and there are seven people in the house, it's not going to work that way. I mean, all of the things. My kids are coming. My kids that live in England are coming next month, and they're going to be here for 19 days. I mean, we are so looking forward to it. And George, our grandson, is going to be here and all that stuff. But, you know... About the fifteenth day, now about the fifteenth day, we're going to start thinking. I'm really going to be glad when the nineteenth day arrives. <laughs> now, I'm being a little bit humorous there, but it is. I mean, that's the reality because it really, it's unsettling and it it can be difficult. And John, but you know, it's still it's worth it. Hosp- being hospitable is. You're all, it's an evidence of you're always thinking of others. Others before you. And as, as John correctly said, in the ancient world, hospitality was, uh, oh my goodness, hospitality was almost the norm. Because there was just and if people traveling or whatever. They, it was private homes is where they would stay. There was almost no other... and. The private homes of the ancient world weren't weren't like yours in West Omaha. I mean, they weren't. You know, it just they're pretty small, but still, um, nonetheless, that was just an important measure. And I think the others, you know, a lover of good. That's a it's a little bit of an unusual way to put it. So let's talk a little bit about that. A lover of good.
1: Oh, Jim, that that, that's, that what we just talked about is in Philippians two, three, and four about. Yeah,
0: looking out for the interests of others. Looking out for the interests of others. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Absolutely. Lover of good. Uh, in the uh, PowerPoint slide, it has a lover of what is good, which may clarify it a little bit better. What does that mean, though? A lover of good or a lover of what is good. What comes to your mind there?
1: Righteousness.
0: Okay, Righteousness.
1: Uplifting.
0: Okay, that which is uplifting. What's the opposite of a lover of good? That's not a hard question. A lover of evil. <laughs> so, I mean, it's... Do, do, you, do you love the things... You know, Rob's word. Do you love the things that are good and righteous to God? The values and virtues and standards that are compatible with our God? Or do you love evil? Which is not an abstract idea in 2018, for goodness sakes. You're silence. So you're thinking. Self-control, that's exactly what it means. Excuse me. I love Robin Hood, that's why it's so... <laughs> <laughs> What does upright mean? That's how the ESV translates that, upright. Some translations translate it just. I think
1: it's like a moral
0: compass. Mm, good, good, good. A moral, a moral compass, a moral ethical compass in, in your life. We might use word like integrity. Integrity is your moral compass is always set toward God, whether anybody's looking or not, or anyone's looking over your shoulder or not. A number of individuals in the Bible are described as upright. Job is. Abraham is. From the Old Testament, for example. Yeah?
1: I think as it pertains to this setting of church, you know, being just, there's certainly a balance to it. But you know, if there's some infraction, let's say, you have to deal with it. Mm. You can't sweep it under the rug yeah. or ignore it, yeah. because then that that just never you know why have those rules or those standards if you're going to hold it because this guy's your friend or yeah person that it's hard to replace.
0: Good, good, good.
1: Play on your example. From earlier,
0: so. It's really a good comment, Joel. That's right. uh It's. You have the tendency to cover it up, or do you have the tendency? Okay, we've got to deal with this, regardless of the circumstances. We've got to deal with this. Uh, yeah, that's that's good. That's good. Um, there are so many, so many ways to apply this, but I, I think we're we're right on the last two. Holy, which is very much that, tagiatmos. most. It's the key word that defines the character of God. And again, it, we're aligning ourselves with with the character of God. He says to us, I want you to be holy as I'm holy. And then that last, um, Dave used that word in, in a couple of his illustrations from his business, discipline. The word discipline, by the way, is um, a, a word fr- from which we get uh, a teacher or pedagogue or uh, pedagogical or the kind of the kind of term that focuses on, you, you're, you're always correcting. You're always correcting and betting back on track when you get off track. <laughs> that, that's what discipline really means. It's, you know, we all get off track. But is are you willing to come back quickly? Discipline is you're getting back on track. So you take those where it's appropriate to end a, this List of virtues with that word, you know, are you someone that is sensitive, sensitive to and willing to always embrace a repentant spirit? Do you understand what I mean by that? Because you're always coming back on the track of your walk with the Lord. And the goal of discipline is always restorative and corrective, it's not punitive. I hope I'm, I'm dicing some words there. I hope they make sense, but it's that kind of approach. To, it's that kind of approach to life, <clears throat> and I think a lot of this is um, a lot of these qualities that he is talking about here. That Paul is talking about here, really do relate ultimately to how does this man look at his God. Nobody responded to that, but really, how does this individual that that I am observing? How does he look at his God? I, I'm I'm saying that because um, my wife and I have been watching um, a couple of video lectures, is sort of what they are. But have any of you, have you ever heard of Louis Giglio? Okay, uh, Dave has maybe one or two others. I honestly, I have just, I have absolutely been challenged by this guy. Um, The reason, um, we've seen two of them, but his first one that we watched was, um, how big is your view of God? And what he focuses on is astronomy. He focuses on the, the galaxies. He focuses on, the complexity and vastness of this universe. He says you need to change your view of God. He's a big God. He's a really big God. And you do think of that big God in light, <laughs> light years. <laughs> I mean, he's just, and the you know, fantastic photographs we now can exhibit because of the Hubble telescope, which I know you've all heard of that. And it's it's just—it's really—it's just—he anything he says, I don't already know. That's not the point. It's—it's meshing it with these remarkable photographs. That's right. My God created that. And that is a magnificent illustration of what David says in Psalm 19: The heavens declare the glory of God. And then the second lecture, he goes to the other side. You and I individual human beings, creating an image of God. 23 chromosomes come together from our dad, 23 chromosomes come together from our, our mom in a single egg called an embryo. And the 4 billion pieces of DNA information are there in that embryo. And he says the complexity and vastness of God's universe exhibited in the heavens is equally evident in you. And I mean it's just it's a way of looking at God in a fresh new perspective. Our God is awesome. And then of course the natural thing you go is what Psalm eight says. Lord, Lord, why do you pay attention to us humans? Why are you concerned about us? Why do you even care about us? which is a good rhetorical question and the answer of course is he created us he loves us and he wants a relationship with us but it has to be on his terms and that's why he sent Jesus so in a way the character of a, of a man is determined by I think how he really sees his God and if you really believe everything the Bible says about him and you really believe all that Jesus has done for you it's going to change how you live and that's what I've been challenged, just in a fresh new way. I need to keep my perspective about God properly focused. He's vast, he's great, he's powerful, he's majestic. but He's loving and caring, and the best evidence is that, is what Jesus has done for me. It's a great truth. So if you've not seen, I recommend those. They're, they're really refreshing, they're just refreshing perspective on the Lord. i got to pray here, so we gotta, I shouldn't say it that way. I want to pray so we can let you go here. Heavenly Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you for these challenges from Paul's uh, writing to Titus, instructing him to get leaders in all the little churches there in Crete. And he says, Titus, choose men above reproach. Don't just fill slots. Take your time. Fill these leadership positions with men who have a proper view of God, a proper view of themselves, and are deeply committed to him. Thank you for these guys around the table. Thank you for their lives. Thank you for what you've done and what you're continuing to do in their lives. Bless them, use them, help them in all the areas of their life. And We're all dependent on you. We're all growing. We're all in process. But thank you for your patience, your love, and your long-suffering with each one of us. As we go our separate ways, we ask you to dismiss us with your blessing, take care of us, and Lord, use us. May we represent you well, in Christ's name. Amen. 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 See you next week.